I'm Mike Cruz, your host, private pilot, author of Saturday Every Day, and CEO of North Texas Wealth Management, a firm dedicated to values-based financial planning. Hi, welcome back to the North Texas Wealth Podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest, Michael Cohen is is uh, here with me on uh, Zoom, and he is an estate planning attorney, but specializes in elder law. In fact, uh, one of the income trusts that you can create to uh, qualify for public benefits, uh, usually called the Miller Trust. He was the first one in Texas to create it, uh, really a thought leader in elder law and estate planning. Uh, Michael, thanks for being here with me. Thank you, I appreciate it, I welcome the opportunity. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your background. I know um, we've talked extensively in, in state planning and details and, and always kind of view you as, as the expert. How did, how did you get there? Where did you go to school? How did you get into this? Well, quite frankly, they didn't have elder law when, um, when I went to law school because now I'm an elder elder law attorney. <laughs> uh, at the time, I was doing more estate planning and then... Uh, I had I knew about these laws that changed in 1993, and um, that were passed by federal law. And when I did, uh, I had a client that had an issue that needed uh, eligibility uh, under Medicaid, and then I had did that trust that you're talking about. And um, all of a sudden, because I did this trust that I just Texanized something that really, quite frankly, had been done in Colorado. Because uh, it was Miller, the case of Miller, uh, was called Miller versus Ibarra, uh, and that's why they call it Miller Trust. Was actually the first case was in 1990, and then the federal government kind of approved what they did in Colorado. So because because it was so brand new, uh, and I just happened to know about the law, uh, people started calling me and asking me to speak about the subject, and then all of a sudden. Um, uh, I guess it just kind of took over. And quite frankly, I like helping out those who are elderly and disabled. So I just kind of found my niche and I've been doing it ever since. That's great. And I got to tell you, it's definitely on the top of mind for, for most everybody these days. I mean, let's face it, if you're, you know, a baby boomer in retirement, you start thinking about, you know, uh, you know, what happens if I'm incapacitated or unable to, to manage my assets and how would I make sure my spouse is okay and what types of, uh, you know, long-term care, public benefits, if, you know, uh, I don't want my, all of my assets just to, to disappear. I'd like to leave those to my heirs. And, you know, what if I need long-term care benefits? And so understanding how that works, but then also on the flip side, you know, many people are still taking care of, you know, elder parents that are in the thick of it, right? Um, and, uh, you know, mental illness these days, um, you know, Alzheimer's and, and dementia, and then that can, you know, strike at any age. And then you're right in the thick of it, needing an elder law attorney to help you understand what are the public benefits. Can you kind of talk about what do people, what are the questions really even that people need to be start uh, asking themselves and getting prepared for? Well, you know, first of all, most people are under the misunderstanding that Medicare will take care of them no matter what. Uh, the reality is that Medicare is somewhat, I guess, disease discriminatory. Uh, okay, if you have a heart attack, that's fine. But if you had Alzheimer's, well, oh, gee, that's pretty expensive uh, for cost of care. Of course, we have some new drug coverage. Uh, some drugs have been covered uh, that Medicare will cover 
just as of July of this year. But anyway, most people don't think about long-term care and people are living longer. Uh, my wife's grandmother lived to be 107 and a half. She died prematurely. Uh, her baby brother uh, lived to be 103 and a half and her baby sister, 102 and a half. People are living longer. I always tell her she's younger than me that I think she's going to outlive me by 50 years and I think she's trying to extend that. But in any event, the uh, people are living longer, notwithstanding COVID. And uh, as a result, they're more likely to live longer, but they're more likely to become disabled. And so if that is the case, uh, then how do you, the cost of care is great. Um, it's particularly long-term care. Uh, I'm sure of a particular facility that has um, uh, both assisted living, memory care, nursing care, and it's a lot of times ten to $11,000 a month. Average cost of care is like 7500 for a nursing home. And so if you're like like my my grandmother, who don't they don't live as long in my family as they do in my wife's. Uh, she went into a nursing home at age 85 and uh, lived to almost 98. But when you think about if you multiply that 7,500 times uh, 13 years over times 12, 12 months times 13 years, then you can see it could eat up a good portion of your estate. So then you either one or one of a few things should happen. Either you should consider, depending upon what your assets are, if you have millions of dollars and you might be self-insured and you don't care about long-term care cost, uh, or you could consider long-term care insurance. Um, there's been more of a trend towards the hybrid policies where it's kind of a combination of annuities and life insurance, et cetera, uh, to help pay for care where you give, there's different models to help pay for care. Uh, or you look at ways for the government to help uh, to preserve your resources. So a lot of times it depends upon what your income is, or there's another way you can do someplace like y'all, you can set up a series of some sort of annuities that will have a certain amount of income that might pay for cost of care. Uh, so there's lots of different ways to skin the cat. Uh, some people prefer one way and some prefer another. Uh, uh, but uh, a lot of times uh, we'll have people that will have some assets and they say, oh, I want to protect X amount from spin down because you see public benefits are means tested. Now, you don't have to be necessarily poor to get eligibility for Medicaid, which is the surprising thing, unless you're single. Uh, if you're married, there's a lot more assets you can protect because federal laws prevent spousal impoverishment. Uh, so it gets into kind of a lengthy discussion. So, uh, but there's different things you could do. And so even if you couldn't, if you couldn't uh, protect all that from uh, spin down, sometimes people create trust uh, subject to a look back period. In other words, the government presumes that if you make a gift that you did it on purpose to get eligible for Medicaid. So when people are about to make their Christmas gifts, if they're older, they may want to think twice if they're given very much not because they don't love their grandchild or whomever, but because if they didn't have long-term care insurance, Medicaid is going to presume that you did it on purpose to reduce assets to get eligible for their benefits. Yeah. What is that typical look-back period? What is the look-back period? The look-back yes. period, yeah. Yeah. So, well, for Medicaid, okay, well, the rules are different. There's, I should tell you, there's 109 Medicaid programs, each with their own rules. Um, I'll mention three Medicaid, and then I'll mention veterans benefits. 
uh, for non-service connected disability. The look back period if you're in a nursing home is five years. They look at the average daily cost of care, which is presently $242.13. And they would divide that into the amount of the uncompensated transfer. So it's not necessarily a gift, but if you had, let's say you had a, uh, a car worth $10,000 and you gave it to a grandchild for a dollar, that would be a $9,999 uncompensated transfer. They would divide that if it was been done in the last five years before you apply by 242.13. And that would tell you how many days of ineligibility from the date you apply and are otherwise eligible. So even if you, ma if you made it, uh, if you didn't apply until, well, five months from now, the penalty and were otherwise eligible, the penalty wouldn't start until whenever you applied and are otherwise eligible. Uh, there is no limit to the length of ineligibility. So if you had made a substantial gift that was worth equivalent of more than five years, then you just wouldn't apply for Medicaid until after the five years is up. And a lot of times we'll do irrevocable trust to, um, uh, they're subject to a look back, but we have elements of control so that it has no adverse tax consequences. So in other words, if somebody died you get a step up in basis, a recalculation of the values, the date of death. It can still be taxed to them at their individual rate uh, as opposed to the trust tax rate. Uh, and uh, also it's not a, a gift because you have these elements of control. So no gift tax when you transfer the assets into the trust and it's part of your estate, which is not much of an issue right now for most, especially if you're gonna apply for Medicaid, because you wouldn't, if, if you had a taxable state, you wouldn't be applying probably. Uh, the state tax limit, as you may know, in 2023 is 12920000 going up to 13610000 next year. Uh, so this would not be for those people who have taxable estates. So for a nursing home, you divide by the average cost of care, that two forty two thirteen per day. If you're in, uh, there's also another Medicaid program uh, if you're in some assisted living facilities or at home. Mm -hmm. Now, on this particular Medicaid program, even though there's a five-year look-back period, you make a $500 gift and you're ineligible for five years. So you have to be careful which program, because a lot of people want to stay at home. They are not aware that Medicaid will pay for somebody to come to the home uh, if, you, uh, have, if you're bad enough. Uh, medically needing, let's say you need skilled care, but you're at home and you want to get, let's say, 35 to 40 hours for the government to pay for somebody to pay for cost of care. Uh, the government uh, does have a Medicaid program for that. However, on the gifting, uh, as opposed to saying there might be, you know, three years or two months of ineligibility, uh, there would be five years of ineligibility. And then there's another Medicaid program. Sorry to tell you about so many options, but there's one that gives, let's say, 15 or 20 hours a week, community attendance uh, services. There's no look back period at all. But if you apply for one of the others, then there is uh, a transfer. The rules for that particular program prevail. And then on VA, there's a three-year look back period. Now on that, they look at the uh, average cost of what the it's called the uh, improved pension benefit. This is for non-service connected disability. So it's not like that you got injured during wartime, but if you were uh, just had something, you know, let's say you were in Korea or World War II or Vietnam and uh, you were not dishonorably discharged, 
uh, but you just became disabled later on. He had a stroke at age 85. Well, and he had to go into assisted living. Well, there's a three-year look-back period if you make a gift there. Uh, and th that the rules there are a little bit different because it starts from the date you make the gift as opposed to the date you apply and are otherwise eligible. So uh, this is, by the way, not to be confused with the gift tax laws. As you know, uh, in 2022, you can give up to $17,000 a year per year per person without reporting to the IRS, soon to be going up to 18000 in 2024. A lot of people get that mixed up with the uh, Medicaid rules. Uh, just because the gift tax laws permit that doesn't mean that Medicaid or VA will allow that because this is not based on, you know, uh, gift taxes, the Rockefellers gave things to their children or grandchildren, so there'd be less estate tax many years ago. Uh, here, it's an anti-fraud provision. You gave away assets. We presume that if you made gifts within this look-back period, whether it be three or five years, that we think you did on purpose to reduce your assets because public benefits are means-tested to get us to pay for your care. Right, right. So kind of big picture, though, I think, you know, a lot of people don't understand kind of exactly what Medicaid benefits are. But when you hear the word and it gets confused, obviously, with Medicare. Right. So I say Medicare is something you pay into, you know, while you're working. It's medical coverage. Medicaid is really more of a needs based welfare type program because it's it's the public paying for your long-term care needs, your health needs, you just stay in your home or, or whatever. And so there is this testing because they wanna make sure, hey, we want you to use all of your assets up before the general public pays for your benefits, right? Yeah, but it's really, it, but there are federal laws to prevent spousal impoverishment. Okay. So even though there, the resource limit, uh, well, there's certain things that do not count to begin with, like a home and a car, pre-need funeral. And in Texas, the interesting thing is if an IRA, a traditional IRA or any IRA, well, not a Roth IRA, excuse me, uh, an IRA where there's usually RMDs, required minimum distributions, uh, does not count as a resource under Texas Medicaid law, uh, although they look at the income from the RMDs. Uh, if you were under the age, you know, typically now, it depends on your year of birth, whether you were taking it 70 and a half, 72 or 73, uh, coming this uh, coming year. Yeah. Um, if you're making RMDs, they just look at the RMDs as income in the month of receipt, whereas the IRA itself uh, w wouldn't count. Now, I guess if your IRA is really large and your income is large enough, you know, enough to pay for cost of care, then you wouldn't be applying for Medicaid. But you could see you could have several hundred thousand dollars, if not more, on just an IRA, even if you're single, and it wouldn't count as a resource, so that's really not spending it down. And even if you had a mortgage on your home, since a home doesn't count, you could pay off that mortgage. And there's also some exceptions uh, for gifting, uh, uh, unlike the, five, well, I told you five-year look-back period, but there's exceptions to every rule. And if there is a spouse, if the income of the couple is low enough, when I say low enough in year 2023, if they combine non-countable resource income, typically Social Security and a pension, but perhaps the IRA RMDs as well, uh, is less than uh, $3,715.50 between the two of them, or $3,853.50 as of January 1, 2024. 
the lower it is, the more that you could protect. So even though there may have been a maximum of around $154,000 of countable resources, in other words, things not like the home or car or pre-need funeral uh, or the IRA, you could expand the amount that you could keep. So for example, if you had $3,000 of non-countable resource income, typically social security or pension, you're around $800 less than the limit. Well, then there's a formula where you could keep more and be eligible. So it's possible somebody with three, four, five hundred thousand dollars exclusive of the home or a car or pre-need funeral or the IRA uh, could be eligible for Medicaid if they're married. Okay. And what types of things can you do if someone, let's say, is slightly over the threshold? Let's say you add up their income and they're at five thousand dollars a month above that three thousand dollar threshold. Is there anything yeah. they can do to qualify for benefits? Yes, there is. Uh, there's a certain type, especially if the, it's really best if the quote unquote well spouse uh, has a good, a higher amount of income. See, the well spouse could have unlimited income. So let's just assume that the ill spouse had income of $1,500 and the uh, well spouse had income of $3,500. And let's say that they had three or four or $500,000. Uh, let's say they're 80 years old, whatever. Uh, there's a certain type of annuity that you can purchase that doesn't count as an asset because it's more of an income stream. I'll say this kind of fast and don't worry to all anyone listening, the test will not be difficult at the end of this podcast, but the, uh, the in, it's a single premium in other words, you pay all up front, immediate annuity. It starts paying you out immediately, payable monthly. Uh, every month, you'll be getting, that well spouse will be getting income. They put, let's say in our example, let's say we had 500,000 and let's say you put 400,000 in the annuity. It's a single premium, you put, get 400,000. Uh, it starts paying you out immediately. Uh, so the very next month, if I bought it in November of 2023, as of December uh, 2023, uh, it starts paying you back your money uh, immediately, uh, monthly, the same amount, every same amount each month for a term certain, a certain period of time, less than your life expectancy, that well spouse's life expectancy. Now, usually we make it lesser than that. A lot, I don't think I've ever done more than more than five years. Uh, because we want to make sure our, we get all our money back because in the event that the person dies uh, within that term, then after the ill spouse could be named as a beneficiary, the state has to be named as a remainder beneficiary. So we want to get all of our money back as quickly as possible. Uh, so sometimes we, we have annuities are less than a year. Uh, sometimes they're up to about five years at the most, depending on the age. The older you are, the shorter it should be. So I'm going to give you an outrageous example. Um, okay, so a 97-year-old man came to my office, uh, and they had something like 300000 And his wife was in a nursing home, and her income was really pretty nominal. Uh, let's say it was $700 a month. She had social security. And he said, is there any way that I could get eligibility for Medicaid? I said, yeah, uh, we could. We could put this, let's say we put 200000 or whatever it was into the annuity. But I, I remember we were paying out. Uh, I said, you're, you're, the risk is that if you died within the year, 
And it's possible that, uh, first of all, your wife will lose Medicaid because now her income is going to be too low and it would be enough to pay for cost of care. And whatever the state did pay, uh, to the extent that Medicaid benefits have been advanced, they're going to get repaid. Now, that may be cheaper than the private rate, but still there would be repayment. And I said, so I told him, I said, look, if you... So we made it a one-year annuity. It was paying like, oh, I think it was like $17,000 a month, uh, some uh, high amount. Uh, and uh, and you have to live to 98. If you don't live to 98, we're going to kill you because you ruined our plan. So, uh, so but basically, and he did live to be 98. Right. And so he, so, uh, he got all of his money back. Uh, the, the government, uh, he, the wife just gave up her $700. Remember, I told you a minute ago that the average cost of care is about $7,500. So now we save $6,800 by buying that certain type of Medicaid-compliant annuity. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some other exceptions that most people are not aware of. Okay. Sometimes there's gifting. So you say, well, I told you there's a transfer penalty. But let's say you had some grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren. Well, the government wants to encourage uh, college education. So if you establish a Uniform Transfers to Minors Act account for anyone under 21, or uh, if you put it into an irrevocable 529 college education fund, then those are exceptions to the rule. Also, if you have a disabled child, it's an exception to the rules. So sometimes even if you're single, you can uh, do these different types of things. Uh, besides, uh, and for the person who wants to plan further in advance, then if you say you're, it's going to be more than five years uh, and they say, oh, I got all this property. That, let's say I have this real estate. I have the family farm down the road and I don't ever want to lose Tara. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put Tara in the trust because I'd, otherwise I'd have to put it up for sale because it's worth too much. And so Tara goes in the trust with any other properties I want to put in the trust. In fact, I could even put my homestead in the trust if I wanted to, because if I, uh, I could put, you know, because if I sold the home, what happens if I sold the home? It's in this irrevocable trust. Well, uh, then the proceeds stay inside the trust. And so therefore, I wouldn't be subject to spin down. In the meantime, you still get because if you, you know, lived at the home for two out of the last five years, for Mary, you get up to $500,000 capital gains without capital gains. So those all those things are still there. And you don't lose your homestead exemption because you put language in the trust that says you have the right to occupy, et cetera, that's permitted under Texas law. Uh, and so uh, you had, it's uh, tax neutral uh, for those plant people who plan further in advance. Right. So for the average person that, let's say is age, uh, you know, in well into retirement, and, uh, you know, they have assets, they have income, they're comfortable, they're 75 years old, they're healthy. What, if anything, do they need to start setting up? You know, they're watching your podcast and they're saying, man, there's so many rules. Do I need to start doing anything now before there's a need? Or do you wait until, you know, hey, I, I, I'm not healthy now. I need help. Uh, I would like to have benefits. When, when's the right time to start creating you know, do, I, do they need to trust? You know, I think that's... Well, in my, yeah, I mean, to me, if you're, the older we get, the more that you have to be con concerned about things because you're more likely to become disabled. Um, so usually, first of all, uh, of course, the older you get too, the harder it is to get, if you were wanting long-term care insurance, 
um, it, it gets more expensive as you age. Um, the hybrids are a little bit different. It's not uh, very affordable. Still, yeah. So, um, uh, but uh, so you should consider, but of course you have to look at your income and your assets and see if you have enough to pay for care privately and not even have to worry about any insurance. And so that's something, quite frankly, they they should go over with y'all right. uh, and, right. and, and look at, okay, what is your income? What are your assets? What is your health condition? What is your age? What are your goals? Is your goal is to preserve resources for your family? It, do you want to spend every dime on your own cost of care and then use Medicaid as last resort? It's then it, it's not, you know, everybody's situation is different. Uh, and then you have to also consider, well, I do want to protect assets for kids, but I'm not, I'm concerned about that no good son-in-law or daughter-in-law. And I'm, I'm afraid she'll get remarried and I want my assets to go to somebody else. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of different things that you have to look at uh, and, but the answer is, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Uh, we see every day, well, I'll just put it this way. We had four clients that just died over the weekend. And, you know, so, uh, and, and you didn't, you don't, you know, people don't expect to get pancreatic cancer or to have that stroke uh, or to get some sort of dementia that could last for some period of time, eating up the entire cost, or all you've saved for your whole life. The whole idea about planning is not only to build your assets, but to, well, it's whatever your goals are. You know, is it just to be for your own, use up every dime? The la a lot of people say, I want to use my last dime on the day I die, and that's fine. And other people say, I want to save money for my family. I've worked hard. I want to protect my family, my children, my grandchildren, whatever, it may, whomever it may be. So I guess it really just depends on the individual and just do figure out what it is that that person wants. If they uh, want to be able to protect assets and plan for care, because as, as we age, you know, I, I mentioned stuff about my uh, things about my wife's grandmother, just because it's an illustration that people are living longer. Uh, and it may be that they may become more likely to have a dementia, uh, but they are living longer. And then you say, oh, it's cost of care is much greater than most people realize. Right, right. And so I think, you know, uh, earlier on, um, you know, probably before age 60, it's very economical to go get a long-term care policy. Right. After age 60, it gets expensive fast, right? By 65, you're like, is this really even worth it? You know, it's just, it's like almost put a dollar in and get a dollar out, right? Um, right. Whereas, you know, at 75, it's like, you know, you're going to probably pay more. At that point, you are self-insuring. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, you know, for most people, they're, um, you know, they're, they are going to self-insure as much as possible and Medicaid becomes that last uh, resort. And, um, you know, hopefully you've done the planning early on so that you don't end up in a situation where you're relying on Medicaid, that you can self-assure you have the assets or you have the income, right? If we've done the income planning correctly, you know, you have, have the income to support that. And then let's face it, people don't spend the majority of the time, they don't spend many, many years in those facilities that are, are in that state. You're in pretty bad shape at that point. You know, you can't do what's called two of the six daily living activities, right? To qualify for benefits and. Yeah, I mean, my wife's, I mean, my grandmother lived in a facility for 13 years, That's a long time, but yeah. probably the average is three to five years. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, of course, uh, a lot nowadays there's more than, there's all these different levels. Mm -hmm. So it used to be people 
I guess maybe went to a nursing home and then and that was it. Uh, and now there's uh, assisted living that you're referring to, and then there's uh, memory care besides. And uh, now you have, the, of course, you think about hospice care and palliative care and uh, all sorts of different other things that they court toward the end of life. Uh, so there's all these different things and there's people live in these group homes and people live it, it's all sorts of options that we didn't used to have because people are living longer and so uh, anyway it, it's up to the person whatever their goals may be uh yeah i mean the perfect world would be to uh in my opinion is to build up enough assets so you don't you know have to uh and, and depend on yourself uh, so, of course, uh, I think that would be um, the best scenario, but some people are concerned that I've, uh, I've built up all these assets uh, and I want to preserve resources. So if I don't I either get enough insurance to cover it or have one of these common, uh, an annuity plan or to have some sort of a hybrid uh, or they do, a, let's say, an asset protection trust uh, that, you know, just realize that uh, it's subject to a five-year look back. Right, right. Well, I appreciate you uh, shedding light on the subject. And, and we talk about as financial planning, long-term care is one of the most difficult financial planning topics or concepts. Uh, the reason is you can't ask someone, well, how long do you plan to be disabled, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and how much is it going to cost when that occurs? You know, so there, it, there are a lot of unknowns. And so we have to kind of go about it a different way to plan for it, make sure you're protected. And the earlier you do that, obviously, the easier it is to plan for it. But um, I think at the end, you know, it, it's really obvious to probably anybody listening that, wow, this stuff is very complicated. There's a million different ways to go about it. And I think the important part is that you find an expert that can evaluate your specific you know, circumstances and help you navigate kind of the best plan at the, at the time. So, um, yeah. Michael Cohen, appreciate you being here. Uh, tell people where to find you if they want help, if they're in that situation and listening. How do they get a hold of you? Well, you can call my office at 214-720-0102-214-720-0102. Or you could look at my website, which is DallasElderLawyer.com, Dallas elderlawyer.com. I should mention that also I, because I have a radio show, we have a bunch of podcasts on all sorts of topics, not just on long-term care uh, that we have archived and you can listen to those podcasts and as well as the articles. Uh, I usually do a newsletter and I write four or five articles a month yeah. on various estate planning talk, top, uh, topics, not just on Medicaid or, or VA benefits, which we just briefly mentioned uh, uh, but also on anything from life estates. There's one of the topics this past week uh, to widows as to the benefits that widows are allowed. So it's all sorts of different topics. So either that 214-720-0102 number or DallasElderLawyer.com. Great. Hey, I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to the North Texas uh, Wealth Podcast, uh, discussing all of the intricacies to elder law uh, with expert Michael Cohen. Appreciate you being here. Uh, look forward to some future content. Thanks.